0: Can you say check, check?
1: Check, check.
0: Thanks for listening. My guest this episode is Kelly Kennedy, an accomplished writer, veteran, journalist, and editor at the War Horse newsletter. So let's hear from her. Can you uh, introduce yourself real quick?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Kelly Kennedy, and I'm the managing editor of the War Horse, which is like the ProPublica for military and veteran reporting. Um, I'm an army vet and, um, I live in Washington, DC or Bethesda.
0: So Kelly, what are you passionate about?
1: (laughs) You keep ease this list of questions. They're such huge questions. Um, I think I'm, I'm passionate about writing, um, and getting better. I mean, I think throughout your life, you kind of, believe that you're already at your the top of your game. And I very fervently believe that I'm never at the top of the game. So I'm, I'm always trying to learn. Um, I'm passionate about veterans issues, which is sort of unexpected for me, considering it was a circuitous route, but, um, passionate about making sure that civilians understand what it means when they, they vote to send people to war and, and that they're engaged and informed about what happens after you send someone to war. It's funny because there's always kind of a fisty cuffs. If you're in the military, you don't want the media around, right? You know, it's the, the liberal media or whatever. But you can't have an engaged public if you don't have the knowledge out there in the world. And one of the most infuriating things to me about the end of the war in Afghanistan was when I heard people say, oh, we still have troops over there? Well, yeah. You put them there, so pay attention.
0: Right, exactly. It's There's such a disconnect between uh, the general public and what is actually happening in the world. If If you don't know a veteran, if you aren't related to one or know somebody that's related to one, you probably have no idea where we are and what we're doing. It's ridiculous. So where are you from originally? I don't think you're originally from D.C., right?
1: No, I grew up in a small town, uh Demott, Indiana. So it's a town of 5,000 about an hour south of Chicago.
0: That's awesome. What led you from from going from that to living in DC and doing veterans issues and and journalism and putting all this stuff together? How did that how did that come to be? Like what was your what was the path there?
1: Uh so when I was in high school, I was already interested in journalism. I was a pretty nerdy kid. So, you know, I I could write and that's about it. And um, my junior year of of high school, was heading into my senior year, I was editing the high school newspaper, but we just, I didn't have the money to go to college. So I'm I'm one of those, right? I, I joined the Army uh, National Guard initially to get money for school and then ended up joining the regular Army. Uh, I served in Desert Storm and in Mogadishu, which sort of dates me, but um, then I went off and was a civilian journalist for a long time. I worked at like the Oregonian, the Salt Lake Tribune, the Chicago Tribune. Um, And then I was living, I I was just coming out of the Chicago Tribune and trying to figure out what I was gonna do next. I was frustrating because I'd heard from editors that I couldn't cover war zones because my arms were too skinny what yeah and this was after i'd served in combat twice so <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so some that, of
1: the, yeah yeah some of the same stereotypes you see in the military we saw in newsrooms too they'd send like 18 year old guys out to i mean 20 year old guys out to cover the war zones and then just sort of assume that i wouldn't know what i was doing without looking at my my background at all um I'd gone to grad school. I'd studied military policy and Middle Eastern policy and in history. And I was pretty frustrated. You know, I was ready to go. So I got a job at Army Times, which is a civilian paper. It was owned by Gannett at the time. Um, But I figured if I did that, I would be able to cover the military. (laughs) So that's how that came about.
0: Now, it wasn't that's the same company that owned USA Today. Or maybe they still do. I'm not sure.
1: It was, which is how I transitioned to USA Today after working at Military Times for a while. It's not owned by by them anymore.
0: Okay, well that explains some things. It seems like I came in in uh, '94 is when I did basic training, mm-hmm. and it seemed like everybody had a copy of the Army Times. That was the the go to spot where you found out about Army policy changes and and uh, you know what was going on. I remember. I Go go ahead. (laughs) What not to do. Well, yeah. uh, Anymore, yeah. Um, But back then, there were those – I was in AIT when there was a a couple of rangers that were killed in training down in uh, Florida trying to cross Mm -hmm. a creek when it was too cold or something like that. And, you know, we would you didn't hear about that anywhere else. I mean, that's not going to be covered on the nightly news or anything. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you kind of got that information. And it seemed like as years went by – like the Army Times gradually got less into the news part of it and maybe more into the speculation and anymore i mean i I never see anybody with a copy of the Army Times or you know the Air Force Times out here. It's just it's strange how its readership has really dropped off,
1: yeah, I mean it's part of the reason the War Horse exists, and part of the reason we call ourselves you know the ProPublica of military reporting is. And we've been creating newsroom deserts across the United States to include the Military Times papers. So they've downsized. They've had a lot of layoffs. The people who are there do amazing works. Like Leo Shane, you, you really can't get better as a reporter than than Leo covering uh, Congress and VA and everything else they have him covering right right now. Um, but at, at the War Horse... We're trying to build up our team because our reporting can be used by any newspaper anywhere for free. All you have to do is is click a link and it's yours. And that is in direct response to newsrooms cutting down on their military reporters, even at like smaller papers in the Midwest or, you know, the South. they just they can't afford to, to pay for people. I think there's this idea that that news should be free, you know, because of because of the Internet. Um, so as soon as you try to put up a paywall, people get really upset and they they simply can't afford to pay people to do the reporting that we we seem to want to have. So it, it's That's really fair. frustrating.
0: That's very unfortunate. I mean, that is that is definitely a need. As we talk about you know you need to educate the public about who they're voting for and what policies they're going to influence and you know where our people are and what what the military does on a daily basis is the whole military it's incredible it's incredible if you look at at what the United States through the military accomplishes on a daily basis and if you don't have that that military reporter you're never going to know
1: right yeah and some papers still do a really good job like the New York Times still has someone living overseas tm gibbons neff is reporting from afghanistan all the time he's a vet uh chris shivers is also a vet and it works for the new york times you've got really good reporters at the the washington post and lamoth started out at at military times as well um, but those smaller papers man you just it's it's just hard so yeah you know anything you can do to build them up
0: well i'm glad you're providing that service that's you're definitely filling a need there
1: Thanks. Yeah, TJ uh, Thomas, my boss, just—I I mean, his—I his his idea, his dream was brilliant, and he's made it work. So, you know, right now we're a team of three, and that's that's it. And um, I mean, three full time. We've got a lot of people who help us in the background but the the team is kicking ass and winning awards national awards it's it's kind of insane, and he's just up there saying, "I think we could do this and here we go so
0: well, sometimes that's how it's done uh, that's great. I'm glad you guys are are thriving. Thanks so what has been your your favorite project to be a part of across your your journalism uh, career? I know there's you've got books that have been written and um, you know all of the things that you've done with military times and all of the stuff you're doing with the war horse and and I'm sure there's been some side projects in between which one has been has been your absolute favorite
1: so yeah I've got a lot obviously favorite is a weird word to use um, with charlie company one twenty six Mm-hmm. um but that's the one that's been the that's affected my life the most. It's affected my reporting the most. You know, I, I think of those guys, uh, use guys as as family. And even yeah. when someone's coming on and yelling at me online, it's still family, right? So it's just a
0: family squabble, that's all.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, the the things that you guys all went through. Uh, Charlie went through and just the the aftermath is so horrific, but just being able to tell those stories, being trusted to tell those stories, um, meeting the families, getting together years later that's that's been that's been huge
0: you got that right with the the trusted to tell the story that's that's a big deal so in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, If you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go look up, go Google uh, Kelly Kennedy, uh, look for Blood Brothers, the whole series of articles that was published in uh, Army Times. It's about some very personal things that uh, a unit over in Iraq went through. Uh, I was not assigned to that unit, but I guess attached would be the word uh, without going into a whole lot of detail. I lived with them. I worked with them. Um, called on them a few times to come and get us out of some some sticky stuff, and uh, suffered right along with them. And it's a it's a unique story. It's not something that if you weren't there, you'd never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't really know how else to put it. But um, in the military, we tend to have kind of a a feeling about journalists that you know they're not necessarily going to tell the story that needs to be told, they're going to come out and instead they're going to tell the story that they want to tell, which is, I mean, that's, it may be accurate. It it may not be accurate, but there will be a certain degree of spin put to this story. And I remember when you showed up out there and I thought, oh, these infantry guys, man, they're not going to, they're not going to take to uh, having a a media person out here very well because.
1: Girl reporter
0: well and it it didn't even have to do with the girl reporter it was just the reporter it could have, you could have been from anywhere you could have been from any any gender i think and there would have been a certain leeriness i don't know if that's a word but um, a certain level of detachment that they, that people would have wanted to keep from you mm-hmm. but for some reason uh, you were trusted off the bat like they really warmed up to you and i think uh, i have a a tale that kind of tells the whole story. So there was an incident that happened that fateful day, 21st of June. And uh, I had to ride in the back of the Bradley with uh, some remains of servicemen that had um, fallen that day. And when we got back, uh, I think, you know, my memory's a little fuzzy. This is 2007 we're talking about. So I, I may not have the clearest, sharpest memory of this event, but I remember the ramp dropped. And we started to unload the remains back at the uh, at the fob there. And I I think it was a cameraman came over and started to act like he was going to take a picture of the remains. Mm -hmm. And I think it was you that like immediately jumped into that guy's butt. And you were like, hey, no, that's not it's not what we're doing here. And you cussed about it. You said something to him and pulled him off. And then everybody was like, "Okay, she gets it. There was just this overall sense that like, okay, she's cool. She gets it. And I don't remember whether that was you that got in that guy's took us or somebody else lit into him, but somebody let that guy have it rightfully. So, and the fact that you weren't involved with it, you were on the sidelines and I remember seeing you over there that, that really stepped up your credibility, like 110%.
1: I don't even remember that. I do remember being sort of numb and trying to think how you guys felt about this. I mean, I remember thinking if I can get this right, it's something that you guys will have for the rest of your lives. But I also have to think about what the stay is, you know, we'd been down in the the basement watching karaoke the night before and, um, just really enjoying (laughs) hanging out with you guys and, Um, yeah, it just, I mean, it felt like we need to give you guys space.
0: And the fact that you, you saw that and recognized it is something that I can't say about every, uh, reporter that we've ever encountered.
1: Mm.
0: So, uh, thanks, I guess.
1: (laughs) Well, as always, thanks for, you know, trusting me and keeping me safe. So,
0: (laughs) I know that was an important project for you to be a part of. Can you can you briefly talk about um what is it Fight Like a Girl?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's um Kate Germano and she's she's the author and I I wrote it with her. She was a Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who was brought in to um head up the the women's boot camp training. For the Marine Corps, and they only had one place where women were trained. They were trained separately from the men. They're the only service to train men and women separately in boot camp. Um, and she came in and immediately started making changes because the women were behind in everything. So this is supposed to be the most elite service, but they, the women, the military, or uh, Marine Corps women, were just lagging far behind all the other services, as far as their capabilities in um, shooting or marching or, or any of the basics, you know? So Kate goes in, she starts making changes and improvements. Turns out they're telling these women things like their arms are too short to, to shoot a rifle. So just qualify, just, you know, if you can if you can just qualify, we'll be happy. They were mapping out their road marches, so they were short. They'd um, be like a, a mile or two short, so they weren't doing the same road marches as the men were, which meant that when they showed up at their units, they weren't prepared. They yeah. at the end of um, we have this big long march. You know, it's it's like the the crux of Marine Corps boot camp, and this everyone's is the, standing, the crucible. The crucible, yeah. And they're standing there at the end of their road march, and everyone's sweaty, and they're handing out the globe and anchor. And the women have chairs, or had chairs, um, in case they fell out, which is horrifying to me, and it was horrifying to Kate. And she said, "You know, the guys see this, and it's like the the first thing they learn about women Marines is that they get chairs in case they can't handle the ceremony at the end, you know. So she right. took the chairs away. yeah, it was it was ridiculous. So, She made all these improvements. They start doing much better in PT and shooting and and everything. Um, They they were lagging behind in education. Like it it made no sense that they were behind in academics because most of them had more college than, than the guys did, but they weren't getting the same instruction because they were so separate from the men they weren't getting instruction from, I mean, even their their drill instructors were, were women. So they weren't getting, you know, the the infantry guys who'd come back and, and knew how to keep them alive when they went off to war, or to teach them how to keep their pals alive when they went off to war, you know, because they were segregated there. But when you go to war, you're with men, and they're going to depend on you. So at the same time as this was going on, the Marine Corps was doing a test to see if women could, com, could uh, do well with with men in combat skills. Well, the the women were coming in so far behind the bar anyway that they they just did abysmally. You know, they they weren't training at the same level. Um, so Kate sends a copy of. She writes an article. She, she talks about the improvements that have been made at the same time the Marine Corps is trying to show that women shouldn't be in combat jobs. And all of a sudden, um, well, I, I mean, at the same time that she's doing all this, pe- people aren't happy about it, right? Like her her drill instructors feel like they, sh- they already know what they're doing. They don't want to do things differently. Um, right. They don't want to work harder, you know, all these different things. She was also going after harassment pretty heavily, and there was some bad harassment in the the women uh, drill instructors. Um, and so, at the same time that she was saying to the Marine Corps, "Look, these these women can do better," they instigated a um, a command climate study against her that said that she was mean and she yelled and. Um, yeah so the the case that sticks out to me um, after reading the report was there was a woman who complained because Kate yelled at her. She was a a younger officer. She'd come into Kate's office. Um, She was supposed to, to uh, um, set up a meeting for Kate and she hadn't done it. So Kate's like, Hey, you know, this is, I've asked you twice. I need you to set up this meeting. And the woman puts up her hand, like talk to the hand and says, I can't handle this right now, and walks out of her office. I was like, well, what? <laughs> what?"
0: That's not and even an option.
1: Right. And she went outside, and she did some pull-ups to calm herself down, and then she came back in when she was calm. And she used that as an example of bad climate, because Kate was so mean. Mm. Yeah. Can you imagine like if it had been a, a guy Marine complaining about that? People complained that she'd, she'd hug some people and not other people. Like like the complaints were insane. And they booted her out of this position because of bad climate. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately she left the, the military, um, retired, but she wrote this book and all the things that she asked to be changed have since been changed.
0: Yeah, well, the Marine Corps. I mean, anybody that that knows. Like if you are if you're not aware, if you're listening to this podcast and you are not aware, go look up Marines United. Yeah. Just just google that. And I shouldn't have to say another word about the status of things over in the Marine Corps. It was real real ugly for a time and I'm I don't know how much has changed to be honest. I got out and the only reason I even still kind of keep my ear to the ground with that kind of thing is because uh as is the case for most veterans with kids we tend to breed our own replacements yeah. and that is that is certainly what's happening uh my daughter my oldest daughter uh she just graduated from uh air force tech school
1: yeah, and she is, that.
0: yeah she's going to be serving in the uh, air national guard out here doing uh air national guard stuff so You know, I've got other kids coming up and as they come up and, you know, dad was a veteran and all they see is, you know, all they remember from growing up is moving here and moving there. And dad was at this deployment and that deployment and dad got, you know, this and that. So they see that coming from me and then, uh, you know, they kind of think, well, maybe, maybe I can join the military too. Maybe I can do things like dad did. And so my kids have come to me and said, dad, which, you know, if I'm thinking about joining up, which branch should I join? And uh, because of the things that you've described, things in that book and, you know, things out in the media with the whole Marines United thing and all that, the Marine Corps is absolutely at the bottom of my list for better or for worse. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it for my boys either, because that's a culture
1: Mm.
0: that they're they're, they've got to change that. And once the culture is changed, maybe it's something to consider. But but right now it would be a hard no
1: and that that's sort of the the self-licking thing right because you know the the culture is so bad because there are so few women and women aren't going to join because there are so few women and the culture is bad and you know uh, so.
0: yeah it it does get into a feedback loop there but i mean you you have to fix it they, yeah. they've got to fix it
1: right. and maybe
0: it's been fixed i've been out since since 2018 so obviously things have changed but uh, Today, if a kid were to ask me today, I'd say, you need to do your homework.
1: Yeah. Even in the Army, I mean, I was in a while ago, decades ago, and I hear women tell the same exact stories that we were telling back then, and it's really frustrating.
0: Yeah, things, I think, have changed quite a bit, and that might be, some of that might be due to um, my last assignment, I was... In TRADOC, I was an uh, AIT instructor at Fort Sill. And at the time, so this is kind of interesting, I was assigned to the battery that trains 13 foxes. So that's your female forward observers. Mm -hmm. Or forward observers, I'm sorry. And then it it was a a solely male MOS until um, right at the very end, probably my last year there, they opened that MOS to females. So we start getting these female 13 foxes in, or prospective 13 foxes. They still have to go through the training and everything. And just seeing the pushback from within the field artillery community. And, you know, some people will say that, you know, well, no, we were actually very supportive. And I think overall, in general, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of support. And I don't even know if support is the right word. I think everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall. This is happening. Get used to it. And from from my perspective, so I'm communications. I'm signal. Mm -hmm. And as you know, because I think you were signal as well, signal has been integrated since forever. I can't remember a time when it wasn't. And -hmm. like I said, I came in in 94 and did my courses right along with females and all my assignments uh, minus infantry, artillery, and uh, armor. I've had females at all my assignments. And even there – your senior levels have certainly had females at that level. So I've always worked around women and it's never been an issue. So to see this kind of pushback when they said, you know, hey, we're going to have, you know, female 13 foxes and to hear the, some of the senior NCOs and even some of the officers, you know, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We're going to have to change up everything. We got to move the standards around. And it's very, uh, it was very disheartening. But then like I said, I was there about a year after they started uh, sending females through the program. And the standards were the same across the board, as equal as they could make them. And I mean, I say make them. That's not the right word either. They, they tried to leave the standard alone as much as they could. And it really challenged a lot of the females that came through. But that's fine because it challenged a lot of the men too. I've seen a lot of male recruits that can't throw hand grenades at all. They have to take baseballs out and have them practice for an hour with baseballs. And this is the males we're talking about. And then, you know, the first female steps up to bat and, Oh, guess what? She played softball and she'll throw the hell out of that hand grenade. So uh, there's, there's no reason why females can't do it. They absolutely can. Um, You shouldn't treat them any different. It's, and people start to learn that lesson you just got to break that stereotype. You have to you got to open the door and let them try.
1: Right. Like well, yeah, and I've always thought that if you look at people as people, <laughs> like there's going to be men who can't do it and women who can't do it and men who can and women who can. And what that's a
0: novel idea.
1: Right. Like that should be the breakdown period. That's <laughs> yeah.
0: Yep. Exactly. So yeah, that was a that was an experience. But I will say they've even just in the, the three years or two years that I was there, the year without and the year with females, things have changed a lot. Towards the end there, they were um, they were very well respected. Uh, they were opening assignments that had previously been closed. But just because you let the, the females in to train for the job doesn't mean that they're qualified to go everywhere. Ooh. They would come through and they would train and graduate and then be told that you can go to this base and this base and this base and that's it. Right. Because there there weren't any... Um, female NCOs in those MOSs anywhere. So they, they wouldn't have had any leadership within that, that gender role. Mm-hmm. And they need that. And there has to be, well, it doesn't have to be, but there should be, you should have female officers, you should have female sergeants, you should have female uh, first sergeants, you know, out there somewhere that your younger female soldiers can come in and see and emulate. And I'm not saying they have to be everywhere, but they need to exist. And you're, so eventually...
1: completely right. So when they were making the decisions to, to do these, to, to allow women to serve in these roles, they looked at a um, study out of Israel because the, the women and men have been integrated for so long there and, were, and found exactly what you're saying, that if you don't have the, those mentoring roles, if you don't have that, and this plays in, we hear this all the time, but if, if you go in there and there's nobody who looks like you, then it's hard to recognize where you're going to succeed.
0: Right. So uh, gradually, as we continue to train uh, more females in that MOS and get them out there, then they get promoted, then they move on to new assignments. And so now I I think, I mean, I haven't, obviously I've been out since 2018, but I I believe that it's force-wide now. So you can go as a female into the Forward Observer MOS. And when you graduate, your assignment list will be extensive because mm. at first, I mean, it was like Fort Bragg, Fort Bliss, Fort Hood. That's it.
1: All the sweet spots.
0: Yeah. All the all the places, the, the finest vacation destinations that the Army has to offer. <laughs> so what did you find uh, particularly challenging about uh, Army life when you came in? Was there was there that discrimination towards uh, females when you came in? Because I know Like I said, I I know you were Signal, but uh, obviously your experience started a little earlier than mine did.
1: Yeah. um, So when I got to AIT, I arrived with like 200 guys. It was just me and like 200 guys. So my drill instructor had me road guard, and he'd come into my – wherever I was every hour on the hour and make me do 10 push-ups – he was like determined that I was going to succeed, but then he was also checking to make sure I was okay. He wanted to know where I was at all times and that I was safe, which is special treatment and discriminatory on its own. But also like he was, he was determined that that I was going to make it through. And, and I did no, no problem, you know. Um, But that, that was sort of my first experience with, Big Army, you know, when I was um, in basic training, it was actually separate at that point. Men and women, it it changed up very, very soon after that. And then when I got to my unit, I, you know, when, during Desert Storm, I got kicked off a team because one of the guys said that he was sure he was going to sleep with me and it was going to ruin his marriage. <laughs> there was not a chance in hell that I would have ever slept with this guy <laughs> anyway. But but the idea that this was like a a thing, you know, So I ended up going to Desert Storm with a bunch of guys I didn't know because of this. This one idiot. Um, There was a guy, an NCO, who was in the other platoon, who would show up at my house every night and say, "Is your dad or is your uh, husband home?" I was married at the time, and I'd say, "Well, no, but he's going to be here any minute." And he said some really inappropriate things to me. So I went to my uh, equal opportunity officer. He'd set up the CQ schedule. So that I would be um, alone with him in the barracks while the, the, you know, I was getting housing and the unit was in the field. So there was no one back, you know, it was empty right. in the rain. So he set up the CQ schedule so that I was going to be with him for 24 hours in an empty barracks. And I went to our equal opportunity officer and said, listen, I don't, I don't want to make an official report. I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but I don't want to be, I'm afraid to be in the barracks alone with this, this guy. And he said, okay, um, don't worry. I'll figure it out. And, um, I I won't tell anyone. So they put me on CQ by myself in the empty barracks. (laughs) Right.
0: Oh, that's terrible.
1: Told the guy he shows up in the middle of the night with his wife and just like, screams at me and the next thing I know yeah um and his wife actually called him off and and her thing wasn't like she's like I know a lot of people are harassing you why are you worried about my husband like not my husband isn't doing it but like yeah so yeah I had um dinner with my my first sergeant from my previous unit years later and he said you know they investigated you for that right
0: no way. They investigated you.
1: Yeah, they didn't investigate him. They investigated me. And that's oh the kind gosh. of story I still hear from women who are like, you know, they call your former uh, leadership and say, is she a bad soldier? you a troublemaker, yeah.
0: Uh, someday. Someday they'll get it fixed. I mean, <laughs> I swear they're trying. Someday they'll get it fixed.
1: Yeah, we might be a little bit closer right now after the NDAA.
0: Yeah. So what changed with that? I'm not, I'm not up to speed on that at all.
1: Yeah. I think they, the whole thing didn't go through and I I need to honestly read up a little bit more on the the differences, but I think that you have to have an outside prosecutor investigate it instead of your commander now.
0: Right. Okay. So yeah, I remember reading about that. There was a, I think this was last year's uh, National Defense Authorization Act in the NDAA. That we're talking about and i think it was last year's where they said that uh any sort of claims like that that were made could not be investigated by i don't even think they said cannot be investigated by the military anymore like it's not even up to ig it has to go to an outside agency for investigation
1: i i don't think that went through and this year i think it went through
0: okay i knew that was a thing that was in the writing i wasn't sure if it if it made it through or not that's a fantastic thing i hope it doesn't uh overburden the outside agencies that they're referring to, because I know they're they're going to be busy.
1: Yeah, well, they sh- they should be. You know, if you've got a company commander who's deciding which role he would rather be filled um, when they go to combat, you know, like who's yeah. filling what seat, you-, you can't have him making his decisions about an investigation based on who he thinks is a stronger soldier.
0: Yeah, even, and I think that would. That would just be a natural bias. I mean, that would be something that would happen even subconsciously, to be honest, Mm -hmm. at at some level. I mean, Even with the best of intentions, if you've got a a rock star that's, you know, under investigation or you can take his replacement, which may be subpar because they're out there, um, you know, maybe you lean a little one way or the other in your judgment. Right. And that's definitely not a good thing.
1: Or maybe he's your friend. You know, you deployed together and and slept in the same tent for you know nine months or whatever. There's there's a lot of reasons why there's a conflict of interest there.
0: Right. No, I, I think you're right. I think that's a that's a great thing. I hope they uh, I hope they do pass that. Yeah. Have you seen in your experience? Have you seen any other um, big changes between the Army of Desert Storm and and the Army of today?
1: Oh God, yeah. So even even when I was embedded with you guys, um, your ability to speak up and and to make decisions was much greater than anything I was allowed to do. Um, it was very much big army when I when I was in. Um, we don't pay you to to think was the the common refrain, and I'm sure it's still said. But like the the idea that betrayer from the Betrayus level, you guys were being encouraged to make. Decisions was big. Um, the setup of the army is different. You know the the uh, CBTs is is different from um, or BCTs is different from from when I was in. Um, uniforms are different. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> kind of. I mean, they're they're barely different now. They've kind of gone back to what we were wearing in the nineties.
1: Yeah. Which yeah.
0: is fantastic. After that stupid digital debacle.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So when I was in, I was the first in the first unit to use, uh, satellite phones in, in a war zone. And when you think about how much the technology has changed since then, right. it's, it's a different, different scene entirely.
0: So can I ask, what was your, uh, what was your MOS back
1: then? Sure. It was, I started out 31, Charlie. This is kind of funny. So because I went in through the National Guard, it went to basic between my junior and senior year. They had Mm -hmm. to pick an MOS for me that was three months long, right? So I did really well on my ASVAB. And the drill instructor told me that 31 Charlie was a radio DJ. (laughs) Robin Williams at Good Morning Vietnam. So. I show up weighing all of hundred and fifteen pounds and they're like, You need to carry this radio. I'm like, Ugh, sweet. <laughs> you
0: know. <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. A radio DJ.
1: Yeah. So then I was they switched us over to MSE multiple subscriber equipment in right. ninety. So then it was thirty one Delta. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, they called it, minimum Delta.
0: We were really jealous. Uh, so I came in a 31 uniform, and we were super jealous of all the 31 Charlies because they get all of the best jobs. On, on the active duty side, 31 Charlie's got all the, the special ops, radio operator, uh, ranger regiment slots, and uh, higher headquarters like COCOM slots. And you're out here, you know, I'm assigned to Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, whatever, uh, absolutely doing regular army you know, shut up and color stuff. And the yeah. 31 Charlies are like, Oh, we're doing halo school today. And you know, all this super high speed crap and you'll never see it as a uniform. So
1: I, I was not doing halo.
0: <laughs> well, I don't, I'm not sure uh, what, what guard unit, like what kind of, what kind of unit were you assigned oh, to in the guard?
1: I was, I was in a medical unit in the guard for like two years. And then I joined the regular army and then I was in, um, I was in a military intelligence unit, which is really fun actually. And then I was in a signal unit, which is how, you know, the military used to be set up. So, right. uh, and then so, even 10th mountain division, I was in a signal unit in 10th mountain division.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's, uh, still, it's still set up like that. There are still signal units out there. They're not yeah. as, um, they're not as big as they once were. Once the BCT concept came into play, but that's a, that's a conversation nobody's going to care about. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so have you have you been embedded with with any other uh, unit since one two six?
1: Yeah, right after I left, you guys, I, I embedded with several units, and it was kind of crazy because after we went through that, and after other units saw our reporting and the photos too, to be fair to to Rick, um, we got invites. Like everyone wanted us to embed with them. So, you know, by the end of that time, it was like we'd been with every every unit that was seeing any kind of shit at all. We'd been invited. Um, so it was just like IEDs and getting shot at and all that stuff all all the time. Nothing like what was going on in Automia, but and then after a couple years later, I, I did uh, embed in, in um, Afghanistan with the medevac teams, which was really cool. But once again, I show up and they're like, oh, good, the media is here. So nothing's going to happen. I'm like, oh, God, please don't say that when I'm around. <laughs> and, um, the first thing that happened was we you know lifted up and um, our helicopter <laughs> got shot at. This bullet ricochets around inside the bird and then knocks out a piece of the ceiling.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that myth got busted. What's that? That myth got busted pretty quick then.
1: Yeah. And we all just looked at each other and everyone at the same time just said, fuck, (laughs) you know.
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, so th- yeah, just more like medic stuff in in Afghanistan, and then I moved to USA Today after that.
0: Now, when you were in Afghanistan, what uh, what region, what part of Afghanistan were you in? Kandahar. Okay, so down south then.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I've been been down there to visit a couple of times. The, Is uh, there
1: anywhere you haven't been?
0: Uh, I you know, That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I don't, uh Maybe. I don't know. I've never been to Korea. I hear it's nice there. I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did. I did two tours, so two long tours in Iraq and two long tours in Afghanistan. So by the time uh, my career was over, I've I've been to some places, seen some things. Yeah. So speaking of Afghanistan, when how, when things got shut down, when the Taliban. Kind of started overrunning everything, and and everything got shut down. Were you uh, doing any reporting on any of that at the time?
1: Well, I was editing, you know, for the War Horse. So we were trying to think if we're if our our job is to lessen the military and civilian divide, but also sort of to help people sort what they're what they've been through. You know, we've got those weekly reflections where people write um, just a story, uh, you know, an experience for us once a week. We decided to run five of those in one week and just let people talk about how they were feeling. And, you know, I mean, they, they weren't not essays. Like I feel really sad about this, but like, this is what I saw while I was over there and I saw my friends die and at the time we believed there was some great cause and now we're finding out there was no cause. And what do I do with this? And as a civilian, you should be paying attention to this too. And, you know, so we hit it pretty hard on that. And then I wrote a piece for veterans day. We've done a series of, you know, what's the way forward after this? Is it, is it the same as after Vietnam where you've got kind of a a brain drain and people so angry that, they, they will never send you to war again. And what I found was people don't give a shit. Like there was no protest, right? Like the yeah. end of Vietnam, um, there were these huge protests, get us out. Well, this war, it, it was just like kind of a huh, glad that's done or, oh my God, I can't believe this is how it ended. You know, it was, it was one of two, but there were no protests. There were, there was no one standing out on the the streets and saying, bring our troops home, you know? Um, right. hey this thank you for your service is nice but do you know what my service is do you know what these guys are doing so yeah, yeah so I wrote this piece for Veterans Day just saying you know the veterans are going to have to own this they're going to have to tell this story it's going to have to be like it was after Vietnam where Tim O'Brien came out and wrote his his fiction that helped people understand a bit uh, and and obviously this has started we've got Phil Cly and uh, Kayla Williams, you know, there's, there's books out there, but now that it's over, how do we sort of re-engage the population so that we don't, we don't, you know, go back to the de gap, <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah. 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 That is uh that's a good question. And I'm, I hope that the veterans will take ownership and, you know, run with that that calling, you know, you got to let them know, you got to let them know what, what does service mean? You know, what did we do there? Mm -hmm. And like you said before, you know, with the elected officials and, and, you know, making policy and things going forward, what's going to keep something like this from happening again?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: That's, that's a question that people need to seriously consider.
1: One of the complaints I got about they fought for each other was that it was too um, bloody. It was too um, gory. And that was intentional (laughs) on my part. I wanted people to know exactly what it looked like because I wanted Mm -hmm. them to think really hard about, you know, sending people over, but also taking care of them when they get home. And I, I think that's going to be part of what comes out of this war. It's I think you guys are going to write about things differently from from how they were written about before.
0: Well, I guess that remains to be seen. There's still, it's still pretty fresh, you know. Yeah. So uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see how it comes out. I just hope that you know people pay attention. Just know, and I've always felt like when it comes to uh, military service, uh, the things that I've done and the things that I've seen, I don't share all that with even you know my closest friends and family. They, that's not something that that they should have to experience uh, with the the super goriness. I mean, I, I'm glad that it happened to me and not them. Yeah, that's kind of the whole point. That's the it's not the whole point, but you know, it's it's something. You know, it's. Why we go and do what we do over there so that we're not dealing with it here. So it's not in your face every day. But that said, there is a level of. It always drove me crazy over there when I'm like, you know, I watched five guys get executed today. And the only thing that anybody at home knows today is that uh, Lady Gaga wore a meat dress. Right. Like what, where there's a disconnect between uh the life there and the life here. Mm-hmm. And it's for better or worse, I mean it is just the way it is, but it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't traumatize the American public to to know that today somebody had the taste of somebody else's blood in their mouth for your safety, for your security.
1: Uh, I was gonna say the the long term, like how does that affect you for the rest of your life? And are you voting for that as well?
0: Right. Yeah, so that needs to be something that uh, veterans own going forward because nobody's going to tell these stories. If you weren't there, you're not even going to have a story to tell. And okay. it is our story to tell. If we don't tell it, it's not going to get told or it'll be told with so much spin that the the information will be watered down and it won't matter. Right. So if if you could have run the global war on terrorism, if you could have done, if you would have been in charge after 9-11 and I'm, I'm just asking because I'm curious, what would you have done differently?
1: I wouldn't have gone into Iraq. Yeah. I think for Afghanistan, you know, you kind of needed to have a clear goal. Right. And The stated goal was get Osama bin Laden and then it turned into nation building. And um, it, Yeah. I, I think having a clear focus and you know, I'm all about the pile doctrine, get in and get out, know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that all the things happen were predicted at the beginning. You know, these are the things I was learning about during my master's degree. This is why you can't do this. And the next thing we know, we know we're doing those things without any understanding of the culture or um, what happens when you break down the infrastructure and then, and then, you know, leave it to people to, to fix it. You you can't scare away the doctors and the politicians and then expect the people who have never done those jobs who remain to, to fix it. So.
0: To not only do the job, but to be good at it as well.
1: Right. There are so many, so many problems, but yeah, I think ultimately it just would have been get in, get out and don't go in.
0: Right. I think, I think Desert Storm was like it's hard to say the ideal campaign that's it's not exactly what I mean but you know there was a stated goal and the goal was to expel uh, Saddam Hussein's forces from Kuwait not to overthrow the government not to invade Iraq not to uh, build a network of bases and and you know try to build a western democracy in Iraq the goal was simply to kick Iraqi forces out of Kuwait They went in a hundred hours later, it was over and we went home. Right. And that is how you should, this is our goal. This is our end state. And we already know, we already know that we're bringing people home once, you know, X is achieved and then they go out, they do it and they came back and it was perfect. Not perfect, but it was as perfect a a military operation. I think as you'll ever see.
1: It was even more, it it was Better than they expected it to be, too. They expected one out of four of us to die and came out with a very small number of of deaths. So yeah. It was about then, as we can get.
0: Right. And then, you know, we do the the Afghan invasion with the stated goal of, you know, overthrowing the Taliban and you know getting Osama bin Laden. And the Taliban left as soon as we showed up. I mean, the Northern Alliance did their thing with uh, U.S. air support. And I think it was, I don't even think it was a week and the Taliban had basically disappeared. Mm-hmm. And, and as we know now, they've, you know, went over the border to Pakistan, but there you go. And then, you know, we're just looking for Osama and then we find him and take care of that. And then what, how do you even justify that? Like, how do you, as a military, like what happened after that? It's funny to see these generals after that up there testifying before Congress and they're all saying the same thing year after year and Congress keeps going, well, okay, that sounds like a good plan. But they're just spinning their wheels. It's the same story they told you last year and the year before that and the year before that. And next thing you know, it's 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so many billions of dollars invested in uh, you know infrastructure and trying to support a country that is not willing to support itself.
1: And that's kind of the, the key, isn't it? Like all these old generals work for the companies or the, the industry that, that needs that, that or wants that, that military spending.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The military industrial complex is yeah. a thing.
1: Yeah. And, and I that's happened after Vietnam too, where yeah, tanks and, and, big item, you know, uh, air force buildup. And it just feels like we're going to head the same way now instead of really thinking about what our battles are.
0: So in, in your mind, and this is a, an off the script kind of question here, but I am curious, does it seem to you like there's a lot more focus on the defense industry now than there was, after the Persian Gulf campaign.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm I, not even sure exactly why that is, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I know that's kind of out of left field, but I really do feel that way. And I wasn't sure if it was just me or if that was something that anybody else was kind of feeling too.
1: Yeah, I mean, because even if we're not using the stuff for ourselves, we're selling it to other countries. And, you know, there's just so much money to be made there. And it just feels like it's gotten out of control. And, you know, you you hand over all the the military's basic tasks like cooking and waste disposal to the contractors and and it just kind of feeds on itself. It just grows and grows and grows. And then the wars end and oh Gosh, we're not bringing in that money now. So, where do we get it? And yeah,
0: you know. and I, I think the next thing, everybody's looking for the next thing, you know, where is right. the next hotspot going to be and how can we exploit it?
1: Right. Right.
0: So, speaking of hotspots, I know that not necessarily speaking from a military perspective, but uh, you travel more than anybody I know. <laughs> you <laughs> are always, <laughs> you are always somewhere. Um, what has been, your favorite place to visit in the world for for work or for personal reasons what's your what's your favorite go to spot
1: oh gosh we just we went to argentina and went down and and saw the the glaciers and up to the falls but i think probably my favorite i spent a month in iceland cuz one of my friends was living there her husband's a diplomat and just got to see, you know, the normal stuff in Iceland. And it was, it was a magical place. Um,
0: now, is it is it super cold there? Because I, I picture Iceland, like, fjords and, uh, you know, glaciers and, like, super cold things. And I'm sure that's because of the name. Because I know there's hot springs and things are, are generally warm. But is there, like, you know, a, a, a good time to visit, a bad time to visit?
1: I was there in August. And I mean, there was a day I was at the pool in a bathing suit. It it was a hot pool, but it was still warm enough to sit on the edge of the pool and not freeze to death. So it was, you know, 50s, 60s that day or that that trip. So the summertime is and the wintertime can, you know, you go for the Northern Lights and it's it's cold. (laughs) So
0: So you can see the Northern Lights in Iceland.
1: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, wow. That would be awesome. That's definitely on my bucket list.
1: Yeah. No, I I didn't see them. There was one night when they had them and I slept through it. So.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, so that's awesome. Cause you were, you know, you were made fun of me a little bit there with the, uh, you know, you've been a lot of places, but I haven't been anywhere near the places you've been.
1: Well, I think part of that's, you know, my first duty station was Germany and you get the opportunity to go, see everything right
0: right yeah i mean that was my first spot too yeah but uh yeah. you've definitely i mean argentina is not on the menu you know
1: yeah that was that was for my birthday it was great
0: <laughs> that's awesome that is really cool thanks a little jealous <laughs> so if you were president for a day if you were cool. running the whole country for a day what policy would you uh, enact or what policy would you change?
1: Holy shit, Justin. Like.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm good with these uh, out of left field questions. What can I say?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. A couple of days ago, I had a one-on-one with Secretary McDonough with the Veterans Affairs. And we were talking about, you know, all the things that he, he came into with burn pits and suicide rates and, um, people within VA trying to dismantle it and and I said, Why in the hell would you want this job? <laughs> right. And I, I kind of feel like that way for the president too. But I global warming, man, like all the way. You can't you can't deal with anything else until you deal with climate change or else nothing else is gonna matter. So you know, if I had my my dream, I would just go in there and say, This is what we're doing, you know. Carbon neutral hmm. by tomorrow.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know if that's, if that's, I mean, obviously it's not realistic, but I mean, I think no. that would be hard, like easier said than done. There's a lot of things that you would have to change to get there. And it,
1: oh, absolutely it might,
0: it might take until the, the seas rise and overtake Miami before we ever get there. So.
1: Yeah. You know, I guess ultimately the thing that drives me craziest is it feels like, we have so much potential to, to build and fix in the areas where we're hurting right now, you know, West Virginia or, you know, my hometown, just we're so into the service industry and we could be really honing in on technology and, and new things, new, new energy methods and, and educating people in those those areas. And instead, we're just fighting against it, you know, like, we need to keep the the coal mines going instead of thinking about the future. I, I think that would be, it feels like, to me, that's the most important thing for our nation would be to address that issue and then also address like, unemployment or underemployment at the same time.
0: That's a lot to tackle. It is. It's ambitious. It's ambitious, but, you know, I wouldn't expect anything less from you.
1: <laughs> well, I won't be president, so <laughs> we'll have to wait well, for Well, not yet.
0: We've got to give it a minute. Like you said, who wants the job, you know?
1: Right. Well, and with a last name like Kennedy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I, you know, I didn't even think about that, but I should have. Okay, so as we wrap this up, a couple couple last ones uh one silly stupid one what is your favorite movie and why
1: oh i love the princess bride
0: oh are you kidding me that's the classic classic american seminar it doesn't get any better
1: yeah it's clever it's it's you know family movie at the same time that there's some dirty jokes in there if you're paying attention and right oh, it's got
0: action that. and romance and fantastic scenery great character development. Fantastic writing! I, you can't say a bad thing about that movie. No, you can, no. but nobody will listen to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's probably my my favorite overall movie. What's yours?
0: Oh, uh, I think Princess Bride is definitely top three, maybe top two. I mean, it's up there.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, personally, I like it's it's my guilty pleasure movie. I enjoy Fight Club.
1: Oh, I remember that the, came out right after my U-Haul had been stolen. Everything I owned was stolen. I remember watching Fight Club and going, "No." <laughs> like, <laughs> was I
0: a- part of Project Mayhem?
1: Right. <laughs> that was in Portland too.
0: <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, Portland. Go figure.
1: Yeah. What do you like about it?
0: Oh man, I like I like that the the story is told from such an interesting perspective that it's, it's almost a whodunit, but I mean, it's, you know what I mean? There's, there's a mystery to it. that doesn't become evident until you're already invested. And then you got to know. And then once it, it does become obvious what the plot of the movie is, and I don't want to spoil anything, but once it does become evident what's going on, there's just such a, It's such a mind blower. Like, there's just no way, you know. Uh huh. So that's that's why I like
1: it. Yeah. Nice. Uh,
0: So no, go ahead.
1: Poluniack is from Portland. Oh, really? Uh huh. Or lives there now. Yeah.
0: So, if you could tell the whole country one thing, if you could take over every TV and radio and billboard and and everything, and you could just send a message. To everyone, right now, what would it be?
1: Yeah, there's so many things like get your vaccine. You know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's obvious. Do you, I don't know that you need to to tell people that.
1: Right. I yeah. I wish there were a way, a simple way to say, you know, remember that people are people. We've got such an internet thing going on right now where I think we forget who each other are.
0: Um, yeah. The, the power of individuals, you know, yeah. don't look at everybody as, I think we need to get away from the boxes. Stop yeah. looking at, you know, what's your political affiliation? What's your political official? What are your ideals? And, you know, here's why they should change. Like, stop trying to change everybody's mind. People are who they are.
1: Mm.
0: And you should yeah. accept people for who they are and maybe forgive people if they don't have, Ideas and values that line up with yours, instead of—I mean—they're not even trying to convince people anymore. There's so much vitriol out there. Just you know, if you're a Republican, you're a fascist, and if you're a, a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or whatever, you're at the far end of the extreme for whatever it is, and that's almost never the case.
1: Right. It's like we're not looking for connections anymore.
0: Right. I hope I didn't hijack your message. Sorry about that.
1: No, 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 no. That's exactly it. Like, you know, find your people connect and, and open yourself up instead of attacking.
0: Yeah. That would be fantastic if there was a little more of that in the world.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Is it what, that what Facebook was supposed to be about?
0: <laughs> yeah. And then, I don't know. And then, you know, it's off the rails now. It's, everybody's either hard left or hard right. And it doesn't seem like there's, I think I feel like personally, and I'm maybe I'm just an optimist, but I feel like there is a silent majority that sits in the middle and maybe listens to both sides and says, you know, not going to change anybody's mind. So I'm just not going to say anything about it.
1: Yeah, maybe. Let's hope. Well, you're right. Yeah. All right. Well, Kelly,
0: thanks for, Oh, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say we'll we'll find out in the next election who votes who doesn't vote you know what we vote for are we voting oh, for each other
0: it's gonna be messy
1: yeah yeah
0: so messy but hey I'm just here for the fireworks so <laughs> all right well hey thanks for uh, taking some time out of your day to to visit with me I appreciate that and uh, I look forward to seeing more of the warhorse and and what's going on with that and. Can't wait to see your next project.
1: Thanks, and thanks for having me. It's fun to talk.
0: Uh, it was my pleasure.